king of Judah, this word came from Jesus. That's Jeremiah 26, verse 1, and I encourage you to find it in a real Bible this morning. If this had been any other weekend, I'd be preaching this sermon at the late service where I get 15 more minutes because it's just that good. Uh, But the Antichrist is going to take our time today for that. So you get Jeremiah today, a deep dive study, and I want you to dig into a few Bible if you can so I can show you how confusing it is. If you've ever read the prophets, there's a real reason that it doesn't make sense, and I'm going to prove it to you right now. It's kind of fun. Uh, Jeremiah 26.1, let's start there, okay? So find your way to that in the book. Where again it says, in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Judah. Now, now all I want you to notice is that this is the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim. Just try to hold that in your mind. This is chapter 26, okay? Now I want you to go backwards and find your way to chapter 25, verse 1. Where it will say, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. So do you follow? Like chapter 25 is four years after chapter 26. You think that could get confusing? Now, let me show. I mean, go back to chapter 21, verse 1. Everything that's been up before this. Chapter 21 says, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent him to Pasher, the son of Milk. Zedekiah is the king who reigns after Jehoiakim. So not only is 25 after 26 in time, 21 is after 26 in time. Jeremiah is a tough book to read. Now, that was all kind of fun. Chapter 26, verse 1 is where it all starts. That's like the easiest thing to put in your head right now. You want to start reading the book of Jeremiah? 26, verse 1 is the beginning of the story. So when he starts preaching, what happens first? Yeah. And that's what we're going to dig into here. And we're also, keep your pew Bible handy, we're also going to try to figure out what on earth he means when he talks about Shiloh. To do that, we're going to have to go back and look at some Samuel, which we're going to do. But let's let's go back to 26 verse 1, and let's look at the story. I mean, this is the start of the story of Jeremiah. And again, it's in the first year, the beginning, and you can debate that by a year and a half in the actual timetables, in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah. Now, you may not know who Jehoiakim is, though after today, I hope you remember Okay, but but Josiah, you really got to know, because in the history of the kings that were good, I mean, it's like David, Solomon, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, I skipped Asa, he has some troubles, it gets kind of bad though, Hezekiah brings it back, Josiah, this is the guy who finds the book of the law in the house of the Lord and reforms everything right before it's all over, I mean, it was all going to be destroyed, God has abandoned them, they find the Bible, they repent, they change everything in the whole country and get a whole nother generation out of the thing, and then his son Jehoiakim takes over, and Well, the same year, so Josiah has been making all these changes that have been prosperous for king and country. And in that same year that he dies, that his son just takes over, this prophet shows up and says, so you're all going to get destroyed. Now, now, 
We're going to read it verse by verse, but I want you to see how ridiculous this message is. Like they just fixed everything. There's nothing left to reform. All the way up to the top of the Roman Catholic, the Pope became a Lutheran. I mean, that would be kind of like what happened. Okay, he became a Lutheran. And then somebody shows up at the celebration, right? And says, nah, none of you actually believe it. And that's what's going to be shown in what happens next. Though while Josiah was a good king and so went the country, when you have a good king, so goes the country. And a bad king, so goes the country. Uh, the people went along with it, but they did not have the root in their own heart. They did not take the faith for themselves and make it their own as a people. There's always a remnant who believes, but as a people, they did not. And this is why Israel don't call them the Jews. Israel is the spectacle of the nations in the Old Testament. They are there showing us just how hard and recalcitrant humans are. You want to understand original sin, take a look at the history of Israel. And every time you're baffled, how could they forget? How could they possibly not remember? Just Take a moment and consider that the entire world at this moment is mostly listening to a German guy who's like a grandson of a Nazi running a spectacle for the economy of the world and all the NGOs all over the planet. And we just, forgive me again, but went through a three-year spectacle in which the CDC has said this week, treat it like the flu. Treat it like the flu. So before you're mad at them for forgetting anything, consider your freedom to assemble, your freedom to worship, and your freedom to speak, and consider using it for the name of Jesus Christ, often and loudly, against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Jeremiah's message was harder than what I just said. That wasn't brave of me. I was quite cowardly. I could say a lot more. There are people that are saying a lot more right now. There are lawsuits. There are counties overturning elections. I mean, it's, there's a lot going on. I don't pretend to have an understanding of it. But I do know that our times as a country are a lot like Jerusalem's times, wherein what they believed they were was a sham because they weren't actually doing it. Goodwill toward man, philanthropy, the rights of the poor. I'm sorry, we're not doing it. We're trafficking children in sex slave trades across the world. Uh, not you, me, I don't know. Our country goes through our country. Slavery exists. What made America great if it was? I'll tell you, it was getting rid of slavery. That's what it was. You ever heard of dead slavery? Dead slavery is what they called indentured servitude in high school. Called a mortgage. Now. Don't pretend you're free if you don't exercise your right to assemble, to speak. Jeremiah does an amazing thing, again, in this story. As Jehoiakim is taking the crown, he takes this word to the house of the Lord, the heart of it all. This is not like me talking on YouTube or St. Paul Lutheran Church. I mean, if you could imagine a place as big and thriving as the big church in Houston, Texas, where Joel Olstein smiles every Sunday. I'm not like, I don't hate Joel. I don't like Joel. If you know Joel, Joel's made a lot of money telling you how to feel good about yourself, sometimes in the name of Jesus. And, you know, it's between him and Jesus. 
30,000 people though showing up on a Sunday morning. I mean, it's just a different world than what any LCMS church has ever imagined. And it's in that size of a place. It's with that much action going on that Jeremiah grabs the mic on the stage and does what he does. It'd be like at an LCMS convention saying something like I just said, only I'm in charge in some way too. Because what happens next shows you how radical this is. I mean, you, I'm going to jump ahead, right? But they, they try to mob him. That's how radical what he says is. Okay, let's look at what he says. Thus says the Lord, stand the court, speak to all the cities of Judah, which come to worship in the Lord's house, right? So the whole state goes to one city, to one building to offer their sacrifices and everyone's got to do it. And so people are coming and going from all over. You got coastal people, you got forestry people, you got herding people, you got kings and queens, princes, all that kind of thing. Speak to all of them. So he stands in a big portico space that's probably over uh, a large open uh, assembly ground and they guess at where he was when he did this i think but but he would have been heard by lots of people again seek all these words i command you notice do not diminish a word i won't belabor that point but it's pretty cool i think perhaps he says what's his goal everyone will listen turn from his evil way that i may relent concerning the calamity which i purpose to bring on them because of the evil of their doings we know that since the time of king manasseh god has said it's over for jerusalem i will destroy you you're going to be destroyed. He has also said repeatedly, it doesn't have to be this generation. And that's what's happening now. It, it will be this generation. This one he's talking to, but it didn't have to be. All that needed to happen was for the, honestly, the men to bow their knee and pledge their hearts to Jesus Christ again, right? Trusting God again. That's all it needed. Every man that knew how, pledge his name and his life to Jesus Christ and, and walk, right? That's what he, he calls for to repent of the evil of their deeds and do good. We know, again, historically, there's a remnant who will be saved. There are people who believe this message and follow Jeremiah. Um, but again, that's not going to be what the city is going to do. Uh, you shall say to them, here's what he actually preaches, right? So this was just where he was supposed to go. He says, thus says Jesus, right? Thus says the God of the Old Testament, who is Jesus. Uh, if you will not listen to me, to walk in my law, which I set before you, to heed the words of my servants, the prophets, whom I sent to you, both rising up early and sending them, which you have not heeded. And I will make this house like Shiloh. And I will make this city a curse to all the nations of the earth. Like, like That's kind of like walking into a Lutheran church and saying that if you talk about law and gospel, you're probably preaching heresy. It, it, the trick is with it, it's possible to take something that's true, like law and gospel or theology, and to use it to say something untrue, largely by not knowing what you're talking about and using the words anyway. And he's, he's threatening them with that kind of reality here, right? That, that they are a place that doesn't even know the wrath they're bringing down on themselves. When he turns and says, I'm going to make you like Shiloh, this is the part that to me just, just opens it all up. And it really makes the story, can I say, echo with the inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. If you want to believe that the Bible is true, you can do a bunch of proof texting, like uh, Proverbs 3 verse 5. You know, it just kind of says trust the Bible, more or less. You know, it, there's lots of that kind of thing in the Bible. But the thing that has shown me personally more and more the truth of the scriptures is seeing how impossible it is 
for any man, let alone a team with billions of dollars to put together a story that hangs together with the nuance and irony irony that this does over the time the documents actually come from with archaeological evidence to prove it all happened. People who say they don't trust this book because they're like the Harry Krishnas or something, have their own version of something, don't even know. The, you get into the Hebrew and you're like 3,000 years ago. You can't even pretend to know what you're talking about if you scoff at this book. It's, and Jeremiah, again, is going to show this with the echo when he points to Shiloh. Because the thing about Shiloh is, what's Shiloh? What's Shiloh? I know you've heard it before. You know it's a biblical name. But like, what's it from? And you might be able to place it as where the Ark of the Covenant was when Eli was high priest of Israel, and that'd take you to 1 Samuel chapter 1 if you wanted to hunt. Okay, so turn there. We're going to zoom over the top of this. We're not going to read it verse by verse. We're going to go over the top of this. Um, chapter 1 tells you about the family of Elkanah. He's the father of Samuel, the husband of Hannah, and how every year they go to Shiloh to offer their sacrifices at the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant is. This is during the time of the judges. There is no king in Israel. Everyone's doing as they see fit. Samson has come and gone. The Benjaminite tribe and Dan practically don't exist at this point. But Shiloh remains the heartbeat of the people because they all still go there to worship. And Eli, remember this guy, his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they're kind of inheriting the kingdom and taking over, and, and they're doing stuff with the girls out behind the tent. As the text says that very clearly. And like at that point, they're at the point where God's done. Here's the, the wisdom to take from this. Like By the time that sexual licentiousness is normalized and everybody's doing it, God has given you over and plans to destroy you. And that's what's going to happen to the people at Shiloh. We and Hophni and Phinehas decide to kind of harness God and go fight the Philistines because we got a power box. Yeah. Uh, and so off they go to fight the Philistines and they lose and they're both killed. Remember how this goes? The word gets back to Eli. He's a fat old man. He falls off his porch, breaks his neck and dies. Word gets to his daughter-in-law, Phinehas's wife, she goes into labor, gives birth, dies, and names the kid Ichabod, which means the glory is left, which means the cloud which had been with them since Egypt certainly wasn't going to be with them again anytime soon. Who knows when? The box comes back. The cloud, I don't know. The cloud doesn't seem to come back till Solomon prays for it uh, with the temple. But Shiloh, the town, you never hear about it again until Jeremiah. Why? Oh, I don't know, Sodom and Gomorrah kind of stuff, right? Like, just nobody lived there for a very long time because it was just so destroyed. By who? The Philistines. The Philistines. You know, and I don't know, fire from heaven? Maybe, it doesn't say so. It was so destroyed that it has been rebuilt multiple times because it gets destroyed again when Assyria destroys the northern kingdom of Israel because Shiloh's right at the heart of Ephraim. 
not too far from Bethel where that golden cow was. Dan was way in the north, but, but it's the heart of Ephraim, which he's the son of Joseph. This is the father of Jeroboam. This is the north that rises against that slave master Solomon. And for what? Generations again, they survive until, well, again, claiming Yahweh in the name of a golden cow, Shiloh gets destroyed again. And that had only just happened like the generation before Jeremiah. So when he says you shall become like Shiloh, there's like a double fold thing going on here. And Jeremiah knows it. And we don't unless we study it, right? And how he plays on it, they would have known it right away. Wait, Shiloh, which once was destroyed by the Philistines before David, Shiloh, which has just been destroyed by the Assyrians. And, And this is the warning Jeremiah brings. Um, I guess we didn't go over the top of 1 Samuel as much as I wanted to. I talked about it directly. If you'd like to find your way back to uh, the Jeremiah text then, having unpackaged Shiloh, with a good amount of time here still left, right? I go back to the, the curse then. I'm going to make you like Shiloh, make this city a curse to the nations of the earth. I'm going to come back to that after what's he so mad about? They got all the sacrifices where they're supposed to be. Worship's the way it's supposed to be. The liturgy and the orders and everything. It's all the way it's supposed to be. Everyone's heart is filled when they leave worship. But what's going on, right? If you will not listen to me to walk in my law, which I set before you, that's verse four. Walk in my law, which I set before you. Evidently a reference to Moses, who isn't just about worship. If you read Moses, Moses is mainly about worship, Sex and money, mostly. Money being land if you actually want to keep it. In fact, historically. So uh, the law that Israel has in Moses about sex, money, and, and land, that's what they weren't doing. And we don't have to get into the nitty-gritty of it all the way the Pharisees did with mint and cumin. You just have to think about dishonest scales as not just a metaphor, but something that is what banking has done forever. And whenever banking does it, it benefits, and over time it destroys what's under it and collapses and falls over. And every time the prophets in the Old Testament come to Israel, they're basically saying there's so much dross in your golden coin that you're not going to be able to pay your debts and your enemies are going to attack and destroy you. In this way, I'm not even sure every prophet needed divine revelation to see it coming. Because history has gone on a lot lot now that you can find historians who talk about the rise and fall of civilizations as economic policy. It's a very common thing. And it all has to do with what, what does God hate imbalanced scales. If you're going to have a gold coin, have a gold coin, not a gold coin with some aluminum in it that you don't tell anybody about. Right? That's evil. That's a lie. It's a lie at the heart of everything. Since sex is often in exchange for money in life. It's the way it often goes, right? It's why people marry who they marry. So imbalanced scales is when they will not walk in his law. Everyone's trying to profit on their neighbor. Don't look now, but it's who we are as a people here in this country. Uh, He wants them to put the scales back. He wants honest trade. He wants care for the poor. He wants truth, right? Truth. But this all offends the people. So verse seven, the priests, they make the income. 
The prophets, they make an income now too. Prophets started as priests who didn't make income, right? They're supposed to teach, but outside of the system. And look, by now, now they're in the system. Now <laughs> they got an income. The priests, the prophets, and all the people heard Jeremiah speaking these words of the house in the house of Jesus. I mean, he ruined Christmas, you see. He ruined Christmas. Uh, now it happened when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking that Jesus had commanded him to speak to all the people, the priests and the prophets, and all the people seized him, saying, you will surely die. Why have you prophesied in the name of Jesus, saying we shall be like Shiloh without inhabitant? They were gathered against him. So they know what he said, and they simply refuse to believe it's possible. So let me try to put all these strings together too. Like if you don't believe it's possible for the United States to be conquered and captured by some foreign power in your lifetime, well, then you're living in a weird reality because it's, it's always possible. Like that's not weird that a nation would fall. It's, it's possible. Uh, all things are possible when we make idols out of them. Like when we, when we trust in things that should not be trusted in, put our hope in them. It is possible that they are destroyed, even if they're the most founding blocks of life, because God will not allow his praise to be removed from him and put onto creation itself. So the people don't want to hear that. They don't want to believe, and they grab him, and they bring him to court. Now, thank God, at this time, the courts are still working in their country. Um, they work in our country in places. You can follow it. It's a, it's a mess, though. Um, the princes of Judah, chapter, uh, verse 10, heard these things. They came up from the king's house to the house of the Lord and sat down in the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. So what that means is all the elders of the land, people who had inherited names generation upon generation, like back to David's time, who had property in the city, and an income, a lot of money, you're not just kind of the crowds, they're certainly not visiting, but they have authority by royal blood in the lineage of Israel. They're the judges. And they don't have the title judge, they have a title prince, but they go to the gate, the entryway, and the gate is where from ancient times you settle disputes. You got a problem with your neighbor, go to the gate. Biggest guy in the gate will be the guy who settles your dispute for you, right? It just kind of happened. They get together at the gate. There's a lot of history and precedence for why this would work. They have the law to look to. And wouldn't you know, they make a pretty good decision. When they heard these things, they sat down again. And verse 11, the priests and the prophets spoke to the princes and all the people saying, this man deserves to die for he has prophesied against the city. Uh, you have heard with your own ears. Then, Jeremiah spoke to all the princes and all the people saying, so he gets to defend himself in court. Jesus sent me to prophesy against this house, which again, they can't believe it's going to fall down. They can't believe it. I prophesy against this house, against this city. They can't believe it can be conquered. They refuse to believe it's possible. That's their problem. They refuse to believe it's possible. So they won't pray against this city with all the words that you heard. Now, therefore, he says it again, same sermon, amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of Jesus, your God. Then Jesus will relent concerning the doom that he has pronounced against you. And this is why it's so important that no matter what you think about anything I said about the happenstances and current events of our world, the whole point is whatever you're afraid of is happening out there. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. 
say there is evil coming, Jesus, protect me. I will stop whatever I need to stop. You don't even have to know what you have to stop. You don't have to stop anything, maybe, except just not turning to Jesus, praying to Christ. And he will, again, relent concerning the doom. It's pronounced. I'd say take that into your personal life, although don't plan to outlast death. You're going to die. But in terms of your day-by-day life, those crises that come up, just understand, Jesus plans to avert all your dooms. They're all going to be averted by him. Call on him. That's the point of this sermon, okay? So as for me, he says to them, and I stand here similarly, in, I'm in your hand. You know, do with me as seems good and proper to you, uh, that is, you know, if I speak the word of God, which is my endeavor from the pulpit, to speak it to you from the scriptures, well, then hear it. Say amen. Go home and rejoice, right? If I speak words that are my own words, you call me on it. You tell me I don't want your dreams, pastor. I don't want to hear about your theories, pastor. Right? Tell me about Jesus, pastor. I mean that. You do what seems good to you on that, yeah? But know this, right? I'm up here trying to say what I think is the truth so that you'll just pray to Jesus about it, yeah? And... If you put me to death, here's what he has to say. He's in a much worse state than I am this morning. If you put me to death, you will surely bring innocent blood on yourselves, on this city, and on its inhabitants. That is, if you kill Jeremiah, then the fact of innocent blood, which is when you murder someone against God's will, God punishes you no matter what anybody else does. I mean, the men will round you up and put you to death too in most civilizations, right? But that's how God punishes you. Innocent blood, when you don't round up and put to death the murderers, that spreads. It gets worse. God punishes you by letting it become violent and disorderly in your place, right? So again, he warns them, you're going to bring a curse on yourselves if you kill me, but you can, yeah? And it's going to be on the city, but you can uh, for speaking these words. Now, The fact that they don't kill him is not in what you heard read, but keep reading, verse 16. So the princes and all the people said to the priests and the prophets, this man does not deserve to die. The court worked. Well, you know, an honest judge. For he has spoken to us in the name of Jesus our God. They go on, verses 17, and they'll go to uh, Micah, son of Morsheth, and they'll go to another prophet as well um, uh, to point out that. This is how the court kind of settles it. Well, what Jeremiah is doing has been done before, and people repented and we were spared. So let's not kill him yet. <laughs> let's not kill him yet. The life just this is the start of the book. This is the start of the story. That yeah, goes from here, right? This is where it began for him. What, with our few moments left here, I want to turn it to is to see how much a foreshadow of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ this is. Because Jesus Christ walks into that city, and he is going to be killed. He is going to be killed. Jeremiah is put in a pit in darkness and then brought out to new life. Nice metaphor of death and resurrection, wouldn't you think? Yeah. And Jesus, no metaphor. No metaphor on the cross. It's not a picture. It is the death of the only Son of God, who's the only man who didn't deserve it. And he did it for you. That today you may again call on his name as your king, king of Judah. While the rest of the world fights over the same strip of land, just like it's prophesied, the curse that it would be. You don't have to believe that nonsense. If you want to go visit the the Holy Land and see 
Mount Zion and Mount Hermon and walk the Jordan. That's fine if you can. God bless you for the riches. Yeah. But, but the land is you now. The holy land is the body of Jesus made of dust and heaven come to life. Now, bread and wine entering you to be you, and that's already here. You're baptized. You believe. You're alive in him. You're the land. You're the promise. You're the next thing in the life of the world to come. Jesus has achieved this for us. Faith and the walk of the Christian life is to remember it while they shout about everything else. I hope, again, this morning, Jeremiah's story inspires you a bit to find that the scriptures just have a lot more to give than most people are willing to believe. In the name of Jesus.